This summer, we want to look at different themes, words, images, actually objects, elements of nature, most of them, that are already in the world and were when you arrived. And so they're part of creation, and yet they tell us something about God. They act as signs or pointers. They're visible, but they point to things that are invisible. We see them all of the time, and when we see them in Scripture, we tend to look right past them. Because I think sometimes in our world, we don't get the connection between things we can see and things we cannot see. In his commentary to the Song of Solomon, the second century intellect origin spoke of the metaphysics of reality, and about three people in the room are interested in that. The rest of you don't care. So let me try to break it down. Specifically, he said, there is a connection between things that are visible and things that are invisible. The things that are visible, God has put there. So by looking not just at them, but through them, you may discern spiritual realities that are invisible to you. So much you cannot see. But it's just as real as everything you can see. So God uses objects or elements or forces that are real to you so that you can look through them and comprehend what is true and invisible. Are you still there? So these are things like wind and water and trees uh, and breath it's things like light, fire, tears. All of these are objects, and we're familiar with all of them, so that when we see them in Scripture, we don't even think about them because we think we know what they mean. But in fact, they mean far more than we think. And so we want to pause and look at one of these at a time. I want this morning to start with wind. Last week, Lori and I were up in Holland, where it's a beautiful place, you know. There's a canal up there between Lake Makatawa and Lake Michigan. The backstory of that is that about 150 years ago, the settlers there wanted a passageway to get from Lake Makatawa to Lake Michigan, what they called Little Mac to Big Mac. And they implored the federal government to come and dig a canal so they could get into that big lake. They could bring in their ships and their barges and their schooners. And the government demurred and did what governments do. They took more than 10 years to decide whether they were going to do this or not. And finally, they said there were no funds available. So the villagers got together and dug the canal themselves. It was like 60 yards across, a quarter of a mile long. And to this day, that canal is a passageway from the big lake to the little, from the little back to the big. So when you sit on the canal, you can watch the watercraft move from the little lake where they've all got their docks out to the big lake where the waves and the winds are much 
much more exciting. While we watched, we noticed three different kinds of watercraft. One of them was a kayak or a paddleboard. There's a person sitting on there and working the oars like this. And two of them had fishing poles out the back of a kayak while they were headed out to the big lake. To I looked at Lori and said, mm, what's going to happen if he catches a big lake fish in a kayak? That dude's going to go slalom. The second kind of watercraft was a jet ski or a motorboat. And this one, you sit on it or in it and you cruise. You use the power of the engine to move you along. And the third kind of watercraft was a windsurf board or a sailboat. As we watched, we noticed almost immediately that the big difference between these watercraft is how they move across the water. The kayak, you're doing it all by raw human power, so you're working hard, but you're going really slow. The motorboat or the jet ski, you're using horsepower behind you that's pushing you, so it gives you a feeling that you have more power, but the power is artificial. The third, you use wind power. You throw up a sail and you let the wind that is there grab hold of that sail and it's the wind that carries you. The longer we watched, we watched that there's a pecking order. Nobody in a motorboat wants to go back to a kayak. In fact, they wave like motorcycle drivers wave. They'll at each other. But you don't wave at a kayak when you're in a motorboat. You ignore them. And nobody in a sailboat wants to go back to a motorboat. Because if the wind is strong that day, you can get up to the speed virtually of a motorboat, but you're using raw forces of nature to do it. And as we watch this, we notice that there is a commensurate level of skill attached to all three watercraft. A kayak or a paddleboard, virtually anyone can do with a couple weeks practice. A speedboat, you might need licenses, but a sailboat takes years to master the currents of the wind. But man, if you can get hold of the wind and you can harness the wind, you experience, they say, a freedom and a spontaneity. There's a thrill and an adventure that comes with sailing that not even speedboats enjoy. If you could somehow get out of the kayak and get out of your artificial powered motorboat and get into the sail, you'd have it made. Let 
he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some of us are working way too hard. I am. Maybe you are. You got a lot of control, but you're exerting a lot of effort, and you're not going very fast. Others of you are attached to things which give you a feeling of artificial power. And, and you think that you're moving where you want to go with maximum control, but the power is artificial. And when it runs out, and it will run out, then you'll be forced to do something else. If you could somehow learn to harness the wind and let the forces God has made propel you, you'd have it made. You there? You might be working too hard. Wind in the Bible is a is a powerful metaphor. The word literally in Hebrew is the word ruah. It, it's used 389 times if you count the 11 times it occurs in Aramaic. And that's way more often than words like law or covenant or shalom or faithfulness or loving kindness. Those words don't occur in the Old Testament anywhere near as often as the Hebrew word for wind. But the reason you miss the word wind when you read it in the scriptures is because it's not translated the same every time. In fact, the word is translated in three different ways, three different ways. In some places, that word is translated as wind. In other places, the word is translated as breath. And in other places, the same word is translated as spirit. In some places, the same word is translated as Holy Spirit. So when you, or if you were to read the Old Testament in Hebrew, these distinctions would not be clear to you. You would see the word almost 400 times and you would not know without stopping whether the word meant wind or breath or spirit or Holy Spirit. It would be ambiguous to you. But when you speak the things in English, it forces you to choose. So you read the passage like the NIV does and you you think, well, what seems logical here? What, what, so let's put the word wind in this place. Now, over here, I think what they mean is spirit. But in the Hebrew, 
You simply don't know. And the ambiguity is powerful. If you can suspend judgment long enough to let all of those images speak to you, you start to get an appreciation for what the Holy Spirit can do when the wind blows. Are you with me? So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the, well, it says the spirit, but we don't know whether that was the spirit or maybe it was the breath or maybe it was the wind of God that blew and hovered and trembled and shook the waters. And as the wind of God blew over the waters, things began to separate. The sky above from the land below, the earth from the water, the wind of God, the spirit of God, blew across the earth in a powerful force of creation. So it's mysterious and you can't see it, but man, at the end of six days, you could see what it did. Then in Genesis chapter two, on the sixth day, God formed the man from the dust of the ground and then he breathed, ooh, there's that word again, he breathed into him, he spirited or winded into him the breath, the wind of life and he became a living soul. How close do you have to be to someone to breathe into them? I get the image that in this sacred act of creation, God is taking personal air that is in his lungs and he is breathing his own air into the lungs of Adam. And so God's next breath becomes Adam's first breath. This is a powerful image because what it means is that all of the debate today in our country about the origin of life is wrongheaded because we have brought only scientists to the table to speak of a biological definition, but life in the scripture is a theological definition. Life occurs when God breathes into that fetus. They're alive. It's a powerful image. Five years ago, when our first grandson was born, he wasn't breathing. And while we stood outside the room, they called a cold blue. And Lori said, is that what I think it is? I said, it is. Let's call the group. We called the people in our group. And the next thing we know is the doctor said it later. The child was laying there and all of a sudden went. <gasps> there it is. You understand you've been trained by our culture to look for other biological and medical answers. And those are valid answers. They're just not the only ones. It's just another language to talk about the same thing. 
It happens when God breathes. So the first human and every human after him is dust of the earth and breath of heaven mixed. From this point on in the Old Testament, one never knows what they are dealing with. When the wind blows over the waters and the flood in Noah's day recedes, was it really the wind that blew or was it the Spirit? Or was it God himself blowing them back? You don't know. When Israel is complaining there's no food to eat and a wind blows the quail in from the sea and they drop on the floor of the desert, was it really a wind or was it the Spirit of God? You don't know. When a strong east wind came and brought curses into Egypt, when a wind stood the waters of the Red Sea up like a wall until the children of Israel passed through on dry ground, was it really just the wind or was it the Holy Spirit? You don't know. And if you're tempted to say, well, Steve, use your common sense. The very next chapter in Exodus chapter 15 in the Song of Moses, the Israelites say, God blew with his breath and the wind from his nostrils pushed back the sea. So right when you think you know what it is, it turns out being something else. When Gideon is afraid to go into battle and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he picks up the trumpet and he summons the army to fight the Midianites, was it really the spirit that was coming on him or was it God's own breath blowing the trumpet when Samson breaks the cords and when he slaughters the Philistines, was it really because the Holy Spirit had come upon him or was it because the breath of the supernatural had come into him and he was now fighting with the power of God? You simply don't know. You see where I'm going with this? Whatever this is, this force, this wind, this breath, this spirit, when it begins to move, things come alive. Things change. Armies are put into motion. Nations are liberated. People that are tied up in cords of bondage are suddenly freed because of the wind, the spirit, the breath of God. Paul, pause. Can I pause? Are you there? Because you're quiet. Man, if we could learn how to harness that kind of wind. We see so often in our church, we act as if Jesus 
or the spirit was this kind of benign companion. He is a fierce escort. Turn him loose. There is no place in the Old Testament where these words, wind, breath, spirit, come together like Ezekiel 37. Let me see if I can interpret this. The prophet Ezekiel says, the spirit of the Lord, that's the wind of God, God's breath picked me up and carried me away to a valley that was full of dead, dry, parched, and now come apart, scattered bones. And he set me down. And the spirit said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? He didn't ask him what was wrong. We know what is wrong. He asked him what was possible. He asked him, Son of man, what is possible? What could happen here? And the prophet wisely deflects to the wisdom of God, not himself. He doesn't say more or less, well, you know whether they can live. Look at them. He says, oh, Lord, only you know. Because the prophet remembers that with God, Nothing is impossible. And so the spirit comes back to the prophet and says, prophesy to these bones and tell them this is what the sovereign Lord has said. I will cause breath, spirit, wind to enter you and you will live I will reattach the tendons. I will cause flesh to come over your bodies. I will breathe spirit into you and you will come alive. Boy, one sees Adam in the Garden of Eden, does he not? And so the prophet prophesies. He starts to speak this prophecy to the bones that are dead and scattered all over the floor. Their splendor is long gone, and he starts speaking to the dead. Do you know how ridiculous it is to preach in a cemetery when nobody is around? They can't hear you. These people are too far gone. They can't be reached anymore. Let's go back and speak to the living. 
These are the dead. But he speaks to the dead. And as he speaks, he starts to hear the sound of rattling, of noise. And the bones are starting to move. Man, I'd be getting out of there. And they start coming together and they reattach themselves. And then the sinews and the ligaments come apart or come over them and they connect them. And pretty soon the flesh is there. But they are lying like Adam formed from the ground. But they are still lifeless. And then the spirit comes back and prophesies to the prophet one more time. And this time the spirit tells the prophet to speak not to the bones, but to speak to himself. The spirit says to the prophet, speak to the breath, speak to the breath. Well, the breath is the spirit. So the spirit is telling the prophet, speak back to me. And don't tell me what you want me to do. Tell me what God, the sovereign one, has already promised he would do. And so the prophet starts to speak back words to the spirit and the spirit moves like a breeze over a valley of dead people and suddenly they stand up on their feet and they are alive and they come together as an army. The end. What a great story. Oh, I love this story. Let me see if I get it right. I don't want to take liberties with the text. Let me see if I'm understanding this church. The spirit comes to one like the son of man. That's his name. When I get into Daniel... I know full well who the Son of Man is. He's the fourth one in the fire. I know who this is. So if I got this right, the Spirit is speaking to the Son, telling the Son to speak back to the Spirit so that the Spirit will do what Almighty God promised to do. Am I hearing this right? Am I close? I start to wonder, is this a conversation between God and his prophet, or is this a conversation between God and himself? Is the Spirit speaking to the Son of Man, telling the Son of Man to talk back to the Spirit so the Spirit can do what the Father promised he would do. And this changes everything. It becomes a table of contents for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who comes into this world speaking of a spirit or a wind. And when he comes, when the wind comes, he will be with you and he will be in you. And when the breath comes, it will guide you in all truth. When the wind comes, he will speak of things that I could not say to you. 
When the Spirit comes, he will fill you with power that you did not have before. Jesus' entire ministry is a prophecy of what would happen when the wind blew once again. Towards the very end of Jesus' ministry, it becomes clear who you are in all this story. Jesus has the disciples, that's us, into a room on Easter Sunday evening. And with all of us together in that room collectively, he breathes onto us and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it is clear at this moment, church, that you are not the breath and you are not the prophet. You are among the dead. You are among the disciples who need to be resurrected again. On the day of Pentecost, it becomes doubly clear what is happening. You are not the prophet, you are not the breath, and you are not the wind. You are the church gathered in the upper room, and the breeze begins to blow. And when it blows, it fills the room. And the church, the dead, come alive and stand up like an army. Now, personal word, and I'm done. All right? As I look over the religious landscape, it feels like we are trying to kayak upstream using our power, our talent, our preparation, human ingenuity to propel the church forward. And yet, the further we go, the slower it gets. Is this just me? Because I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer up here. I promise this ends better. But if you'll let me take you there for a moment. It seems today that the public has become frenetic. The public has become less interested. The problem, church, with this army of God, the people of God, this nation... Uh, is not just the laws. The problem is that the culture seems less interested in religion than they were 10 or 20 years ago. And so it seems like a harder sell when we're trying to talk to people about matters of faith. There is great moral confusion in the public, and the public is politically polarized. And while we're at it, the church itself is polarized and the church is frenetic and we're chasing after every last idea to try and revive ourselves. What I'm telling you is on the worst days it seems to me that the church today like the nation in Ezekiel 37 lies on the desert floor dry, parched, and very scattered. 
Every now and then, well, more now than then, a prophet arises in the church to tell us all that we have done wrong. The prophets tell us that um, we have sinned, and they're right. They speak of a racism, and they're right about this. We were silent in the years of civil rights, and we were wrong about that. They speak of a lack of accountability for those who are talented or powerful. And they are right. People can get away with a lot of things. Sometimes they speak of a toxic environment, of churches that abuse them. And they are right. About every other week, I'm reading an article or I'm hearing someone talk about how ashamed they are of the church. And so much of what they're telling us is true that we can't dismiss it. I'll just, this is my personal word. When I picked up Ezekiel 37 this week, I heard a different voice. I saw the same things. I saw the dead lifeless on the floor, but I heard a different voice. And the voice said to me, Steve, just because you can articulate the sins of a people, don't think that absolves you from those sins. You are not the prophet. You are among the dead. You're not trying to raise people, son. You need raising yourself. And if you must speak, because you always do, Do not speak of what is wrong. Talk about what is possible. Don't talk about our potential. Talk about what God can do and what God is going to do. And when you speak to the dead, because you must, don't tell the dead what they should do. They can't hear you. Tell them what God is going to do. And then, Steve, when you're through speaking to the dead, turn and speak to the Spirit. Tell the Spirit to give them what the Father has promised. Am I talking to myself? Or am I talking to a church that for the last four years has been trained how to disagree, how to critique, how to hold people up to the light of judgment, and then to presume because we can accurately diagnose the culture, there is none of it, thank God, in us. You are not a prophet. You are among the dead. You are not just a voice for the Spirit. You are the bones who need the Spirit, church. So this morning, I want to call the people of God back to the wind of the Holy Spirit. I want you to pray with me that God will send a breeze across the church, across our church, across your families.
pray that God will breathe again on all of those people that you're tired of witnessing to because they can't hear you anymore. It's like they're dead. Talk to them. And then talk to God about them. And if you can peel back their skepticism and their cynicism, what you will see in their souls is a voice that says, we are dry and without hope and we are cut off. Prophesy to the Spirit on our behalf.